Hey everyone, and welcome to the House Conspiracy Podcast, a show about the house and on the house. I'm Jonathan O'Brien, and I'm the founding creative director at House Conspiracy. Today I'm talking to Rebecca Evans, a teacher and artist who's interested in the experience of the world from an ecocentric and post-human perspective, uh, as in to experience the world through the eyes of what we in the West, she says, see merely as objects. We talk a bit about Rebecca's perspective on the nature of truth here at the start and how she sees a need to focus on context rather than content. Um, and then we sort of transition from that sort of framework within which she operates to talk about the art she creates and how, you know, limitations can breed creativity and how art is so fruitful for being able to sort of show different perspectives and um, operate within a sort of empathetic frame, which she thinks is what's most important in sort of moving society forward. Um, but now just a little bit of housekeeping as usual. Um, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, rate and review us on iTunes, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at House Conspiracy, and visit our website at houseconspiracy.org. Oh, and just quickly before we begin, I have an update on the duck story from last week. Rebecca saw a Facebook post in West End Rants. He was last spotted out the back of Chang's. Anyway, on to the show. Inside Studio 3 hangs white painted strung up flowers and sticks, old discarded utensils and tools and furniture. This is a space Rebecca has created for herself using timber and things discarded from trees. The walls and floorboards of the studio inspired her, she said. She said she wanted to engage with the materials that framed her practice. So she's using timber in an unprocessed form to undertake this engagement and is painting that timber white in order to create a three-dimensional canvas that she'll then draw on using charcoal, which is itself burned trees. During the podcast, Rebecca draws. She literally sits there across from me and she draws. She has a textured canvas on her lap and she's charcoaling as she speaks to me and she's charcoaling as I speak to her. It didn't really take away from the show at all. I actually didn't really notice beyond the fact that it was kind of nice. Um, anyway, it turned out at the end of the episode, um, she'd been drawing me the whole time, but by the end of the interview, all she'd drawn was the frame of my glasses. Here's Rebecca Evans. Audio, audio is, I think, I think podcasts might be the future. Totally. I don't read books anymore. I only listen to them. Oh, like audiobooks? Yeah. Okay. What are you listening to at the moment? I was listening to Wabi Sabi, um, Japanese art form of Wabi Sabi. Okay, what is the Japanese art form of Wabi Sabi? <laughs> um, it's about impermanence mm-hmm. and permanence. It's about um, a um, it's a history of an a sensibility, an artistic sensibility or an idea. The best um, part of it I heard was where. Buddhist monks um, had some royalty or some um, people coming, yet they hadn't had much, a lot of money. So instead of um, having all of the trimmings and that sort of thing, they went out and collected bamboo and leaves and made a really simple, beautiful um, installation okay. without it being um, needing to have the money to finance it and so it be, it's become a Japanese way of 
celebrating the beauty of time, death, change, impermanence. Through through the sort of use of found through objects. Through found natural objects. Found natural objects. Do yeah. They, do the objects need to be have been like naturally discarded? Like, do they need to be leaves that have fallen no, from the tree? No, I think or? they've. I, yeah, I'm just at the beginning, so I'm just at the how it, the idea kind of start, started and how it infiltrated through Japanese culture and Japanese art, and I'm about to start teaching at a school that is bilingual that teaches Japanese. So okay. I've been just trying to look into their culture a little bit more, and how I can bring that into the art curriculum that we're going to be doing so i was like maybe i'll look at this idea of wabi-sabi yeah i haven't i haven't heard of wabi-sabi before mm, i'm sort of interesting. more familiar with um the ideas of like ma and whatnot within well, japanese art it's a sim it's a zen buddhism it's a branch of zen buddhism and Taoism. Mm-hmm. it's interesting yeah i guess which which makes sense in terms of how they'd articulate it as sort of impermanence right like yeah. that sort of plays into both seeing of those. a landscape in a stone they say things mm. like that. Mm. Oh, God. Yeah, uh, Zen Buddhism is absolutely spectacular practice, I think. There's a lot, a lot of things articulated there. Do you often look into sort of foreign practices and cultures to yeah. d- define your work? Not define your work, but to inform to inspire. your work? Um, I'm really interested in ancient cultures. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in um, how we have humanity has changed over time all stayed the same yeah i'm interested in um like another thing that comes to mind that i've been researching is geoglyphs okay what's a geoglyph a geoglyph is a mark in the ground Mm -hmm. by left by ancient culture the most um that you have to see from an aerial view so the most um, famous ones are the Nazca lines. The Nazca lines, lines yeah. 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 And I find those fascinating. Yeah, do you look into sort of the conspiracy theories around totally. aliens around them? Yeah. Totally. I love a good conspiracy theory. <laughs> I did a whole assignment on that back in primary school, I think. Yeah, so interesting. Because the fact that they built the giant lines, kilometers long in some cases, that they couldn't have possibly seen. Unless they were aliens. <laughs> Unless they had ancient technologies, then we think they were primitive, but really they knew some things that maybe we've forgotten. Yeah. Do you buy into it, or do you just sort of see it as like a, use, a useful dalliance of imagination? I, a while ago, stepped away from what's true and not true, and I like to keep open, mm-hmm. and I like to think of things as multiple possibilities and and who actually really knows anyway i think it's there must be other life forms how could we be the only life form in this massive universe and beyond i like to um i also really enjoy that feeling where your mind bends and boggles at the possibilities and so that's why i like conspiracy theories and um looking into expansive ways of through time or space yeah and I find that interesting I don't think feel like I need to say what's right or wrong I don't feel like I'm I'm not a scientist although I really appreciate science and use elements of it in my work I'm not 
I, I like that I can just ask questions as an artist. Slip reading. Yeah, yeah, to just be able to ask the questions. So you're not so concerned with what's true and not true. I don't know how politically engaged you are, but how do you feel about sort of this whole fake news phenomena sort of in combination with that philosophy of not knowing what's true and what's not? You know, I kind of stopped watching the news, the mainstream news, about five years ago as a need to pull myself away because I was feeling like I was so empathetic that it was um, affecting me physically, mm. health-wise and mentally. And I felt the need that... Um, like, you've played Chinese Whispers. Mm-hmm. I was like, it feels like, how can we trust a news form to even... I, I just can imagine how many different ways it could be misconstrued. And that whole what's true and not true, it, it definitely allowed me to let go of that binary and just allow um, perception. And we know that human perception is individual and that we all experience colour differently, for instance, and we all make up parts of the story that aren't there. Mm. Um, so truth to me, as a human perception of truth, I just don't buy. I don't, don't buy into buy. it. What about, I'm really interested in sort of these discussions around truth. Um, what about, do, do you believe in the idea that, that there's an objective physical reality that we're all existing in or yeah. is it I all do, but then you read quantum like you know listen watch well, i don't read and watch documentaries or listen you already established yeah. that um what quantum physicists are saying about reality how it's of vibrations and that there could be the multiverse and multiple possibilities and then you hear spiritual teachings about how we create our reality and then you hear um so the objective truth, I think that's a man-made concept like calendars and watches. Hmm. And I think that um, one possible way that we might evolve is to understand how we are becoming more conscious about how we create things, whether it's through technologies or through stories or through... Um, artwork I think we create a reality that is not as simple as true and not true hmm. so you're very much sort of um, a believer in sort of constructivism and like social totally. constructivism yeah I studied education so totally am and I um, also um, became a parent young as well and mm-hmm realized watching my son develop that um, there were so many ways he could come at the same answer or there's so many ways actually I think I learned that on Sesame Street <laughs> okay <laughs> when okay, they had on. a little skit Sesame Street was uh, so much wisdom <laughs> oh I, I'm a big fan <laughs> I'm watching it again in bird. my 20s when I was studying art having a little um, a little boy I, I looked at it in in a, in a more complex approach to to it. and I remember they had a skit on constructivism where they were teaching like it was Bert and Ernie or something and I'm not going to remember it well because it's but 
basically they came up with the same answer, all these different ways that were all true, mm. even though it was a different um, way of getting there and a way of beginning. And, and I definitely have taken that approach on as an educator that um, it's the process. It's, I think, what, what kids need to learn more than facts is how to figure things out. Right, like critical thinking skills yeah. rather than memorization of dates. Totally. The process. Mm. Yeah. So, <laughs> dissecting the Sesame Street skit, were they all getting to the same answer using different processes? Mm-mm. I'm going to remember it as soon as this is over. <laughs> um, they were getting to a similar answer, but different ways. But each time they got to the answer, it was also correct, even if it wasn't the same answer as right. the other person. So, it was just... Um, it was just more complicated than right or wrong, mm, which like, I really like. I like yeah. that there's not just a right and wrong. I've never had a good memory for, um, you know, when you're having a political debate or a historical debate with somebody and some people can remember names and dates and um, quote things correctly. Um, my mum has that kind of brain and I've witnessed her have many religious political debates and I just stepped away from it very consciously, maybe because it wasn't my skill, but also because I think it, it, they didn't go anywhere. The debates. Who knows in the end? Who's going to actually find out if you're right or wrong about big things like God and um, big political debates? Like, it's like the kind of things that you figure out in hindsight or... Maybe not ever. Isn't that, that's, do you see that as like the purpose of debates is like the idea is that the more debates you have, the more you have to look back on in hindsight? I almost just step out of debates because I see it as, I, I see like that way of, I read an interesting book by Edward de Bono mm-hmm. where he talked about how that classical way of argument is stems from the Greeks. Yes. And where, um, and it's not constructive. It it just you just keep getting, um, you know, you just on this binary kind of. I'm doing hand movements, which aren't good for podcasts. No, no, that's okay. We can, we can imagine <laughs> and, hand movements. And the point is, is he was trying to talk about new ways of being that were construct, new ways of relating that were constructive, that didn't shut off an argument, but opened up another question, or opened hmm. up another way of thinking. And I think, like, as a society, as a, a contemporary society that we're um, living in, we've got some really massive massive issues to figure out when it comes to environmental issues when it comes to poverty when it comes to um, and this whole system has to have a massive structure change and that requires some massive thinking change and I feel like that way of debating where it's um, one person's right and then they're and the other person's wrong and while they're talking the other person is thinking about how they're going to rebut that not about how they're going to work together and how we're going to construct a better reality for us all like surely for me that feels like where I'd like my energy to go so although debates can be entertaining I don't think they're constructive mostly so you're not a very competitive person then no no sort of I mean I can be competitive if we're playing a game I think it's 
Yeah, yeah, within, within the bounds of the rules of the game. But um, oh, there was a really fascinating... We did a podcast with um, one of the artists from a couple cycles back, uh, Caitlin Armstrong. I think, I think it was her who we were talking about games and the idea that... Maybe actually it wasn't with her, but anyway, the idea that games, even competitive games, are teamwork games. Yeah. In a way, because you all have to agree upon the rules. And you're all yeah. working together within the constructs of the rules. It just so happens totally. that you're competing. So I don't feel like I had much part of making up the rules that we're living in in society mm. now. And I think that's what, and I, a reason why I've pulled away from... I, you know, I'm, I don't want to deal with the content. I want to deal with the context. I want to look at the framework beyond the content. I feel like if you can get so caught up in the stories and the narratives, which I love a good story, I love a good narrative, but I feel like what would be more constructive for us to deal with some of the bigger issues that we need to deal with is if we could look at the framework and mm -hmm. how we're thinking, um, not the, the content of what's going on. What do you, what do you see as the big, the big issues that, that we're facing currently, that need the, the shift? climate change yeah I don't think I think I think I walked in here a few days ago and you were looking at um some Trump conspiracy I was looking at conspiracy theories over and lunch God, don't tell people on the podcast oh I'm that. sorry what I I remember then my response which I, I tend to find I talk myself to understanding like some I, I don't think in words I think mm -hmm. in and so I, when I say something, I go, oh, that's what I think. Yeah. And, um, and I think I remember saying it's like science fiction is true because I really felt that after Trump got elected that it was like, oh, my God, it's science fiction. How could this have happened? It's like Back to the Future 2, Biff's <laughs> in charge. <laughs> and I felt like um, I'm feeling more and more like that as, as I research and I spent a year researching last year a lot of eco-philosophy mm -hmm. like eco-centrism yeah and, and um, a lot of you know um, things like deep ecology and things like um, uh, philosophy about how we can change the way we think in time to change some of the environmental mm -hmm. issues that we're facing and I hadn't really looked into it a lot before then, so it was a lot to, to, to take on. It was for my honours year. Yeah. But it was actually really terrifying. And I guess, to me, some of the biggest issues is that, from a Western perspective anyway, that we're living in a way where we... where the background, landscape is the background... And we're not connecting to it in a way that is the, true that we need. That We're interconnected to it. It's not the background. It's not a painting mm. on the wall. It's not a beautiful scene. It's, it's, the, it's oxygen. It's light. It's food. And those ways of thinking that somehow in our Western... Individualist sort of... Yeah, somehow in our post-industrial society, we've got to a point where we just think we can... Um, a swamp is just land that can be developed. You mm. know, that kind of mentality. So, I can't remember the question. You asked me what the biggest issue is. 
I think the biggest issue is how we are going to step away from the content, like all of the debates that we're having, and actually reframe how we think and how we are going to change some this big machine that we're... That's spinning so fast. It's just turning. running towards its extinction. In effect. Do you see it? Do you see that as possible? Do you see it happening? Humans becoming extinct. Oh God! Uh, no, <laughs> I mean, well, maybe, uh, but I more meant the the machine shifting. Yeah. I'm an optimist. Yeah. Definitely. But yeah, I do. I think that power structures are dissolving slowly, and what, and things can often get worse before they get better. And I think we're living in really interesting times. Mm. And maybe, yeah, I'd like, I want to live as long as I can to see what happens next. Well, we're more likely going to be living longer and longer and longer now. They say the, the first person. Just got to quit smoking. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> the first person to turn 150 is apparently already born, which wow. is interesting. And then there are some scientists who suggest that aging, like, our ability to um, survive the aging process has now hit the point where the first person to live forever might have already been born too. That's amazing and terrifying. In that case, we do really need to change how we're thinking. Well, I mean, I think so, because if you're going to live forever, you probably need a planet to live on. Yeah, you do. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. It's it's probably probably the number one... Thing you need is a planet to live on um, <laughs> so I don't know maybe, maybe that'll be part of what will affect it but talking about sort of affecting change and maybe shifting a little bit further away from direct political discourse um, do you see art as an agent of creating this change, this change yeah, perspective I do, I think um, art has many ways of communicating and there's many forms of art as well but I think one part of art that I really like is that it has the ability to change your perception or to question perception itself Mm -hmm. and that's what I find really interesting about art and I um, like I said before I like that feeling of your mind bending and expanding and new information becoming um, entering your brain and even in its unprocessed form, just that feeling of your mind being blown. And I experience that through art. Yeah. And film mm. and books. Yeah, that's all Yeah, art. all of those art forms. Yeah. Yeah, yeah right. So it's, it's that shift in perspective. And is, yeah. that, is that what sort of made you or drawn you to your current practice, which is what you're doing in Studio 3 over there with the door open just through? Um where you're um, building a 3D canvas for you to draw on? Like, is that about perspective, partially for you? Yeah, it's, for me, it's a play with um, space. Mm-hmm. It's a play with um, time as well. Um, it's connecting to a material. So in what I'm doing at the moment, all of my materials are timber. All of them were trees. And I'm in a room that has a timber floor and a timber walls and, and I feel like I am really connecting to that medium in a way that is um, deeper than I have before. Mm. And 
I think um, I'm really interested in playing or myself experiencing um, almost a post-humanist um, experience with the natural world, um, with, with connecting with the natural world. Um, post-humanist in what sense? In the sense like... Um, in the sense of instead of thinking from a human perspective about trees, and if you think about a human perspective of trees, you think like we just look around and think floorboards, a table, chairs, mm -hmm. walls, paper. Um, but thinking about what a tree would think about that, and right. almost thinking through um, their eyes. Like I don't, I don't know if they'd like us much. <laughs> <laughs> like. Yeah, I mean, if trees were conscious, I imagine they would have some issues with what we do to them. And I think one of the ways that I'm changing the way how, how my culture has taught me to look at the natural world, one of the things that I'm changing it is to have that experience where I connect with, um, try and connect with, say, a tree or a river or, mm -hmm. or, or something that isn't human. Um, as if they were or as if I were them so I'm trying to think outside of my humanness is that difficult? like how, how are you finding that? I love it <laughs> yeah? tell I, me about it what's the experience of that experience? it's really poetic okay and it's really um, um, you know it's quantum a little bit too like if you, if you go back to the river like we, we know we are made up of water molecules we are water. Essentially, we are puddles walking around in human form. And I um, like thinking about that. It makes me feel connected to my environment in a way that, say, if we speak to or listen to Indigenous writers or stories from most cultures, they seem to have that connection to the natural world like they're their family. Whereas I don't feel like I've been taught that in my culture. Mm. I've been taught that they're objects. They don't think or feel. And But then in the stories I've loved growing up, say Narnia or yeah. um, The Faraway Tree or things like that, like the, or, or any fantasy books, which I spent a lot of time reading as a kid, they... Um, those things are possible. You can talk to a tree, you can talk to a river and I wonder if actually they are possible. Mm, right, because you've got... Yeah, it's interesting that yeah, the fantasies you raised are like C.S. Lewis was like very much like a conservative Westerner. But he, yeah, he was engaging with nature in that sort of... So poetic. Non, yeah, and that non-individualist way. Yeah, which is, which is... Yeah, I haven't thought about it like that. Um... So you did honors. Um, yeah. You did honors uh, last year. Yeah. Yeah. So twenty sixteen, you did honors. Um, what was your What was your honors thesis and practice on? It was about um, the term the ecological self, mm -hmm. which is a term coined by Arne Nace, who is an eco philosopher and father of deep ecology, and he'll have terms like think like a mountain, or um, and the ecological self was exactly that, to have enough empathy for the natural world that you would treat it like you'd treat your friend or your brother or your family. Um, so I was researching this, that 
term and I also researched it through a few other different philosophers and um, while I was doing that spent a lot of time um, next to different in the city and in in the um, wilder nature which I hate that word nature I feel yeah. like that's a really western word that separates us but anyway no, I, no, no, no. Let's, let's narrow in on that you hate the word nature because it separates us I think because it word, creates a binary between yeah you. which language does it's a, mm. you know language it's a very way language works but the word nature I think um, in it the connotation around it that I've experienced makes it feel like nature's out there and then humans are separate right and it's not the case humans are nature we are entangled with nature. We need the natural world. We are part of the natural mm. world. We evolved from the natural world here. And I think that the word nature, when you can say in living in a city context especially, can feel like um, a concept that is not here but over there, like a landscape painting. Mm -hmm. Like... I played a little bit, actually, that's how I started my honours. I went through a landscape book of Australian landscapes and cut out the skies and the water out of every pi picture. Yeah. And um, it became this book with all these windows of different landscapes. Did you showcase that at the laundry? At yeah. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. yeah, I like that work a lot. And then I made a, a little video of it because the book was quite delicate. So... Mm. Um, that was a really interesting way of starting my project about trying to see beyond nature or beyond the landscape as a painting of something that you put on the wall and not something that you are within. And you need to, you need it. We need it. We need yeah. it to live or we die. Like, no point like going to Mars that don't have water, that doesn't have an atmosphere. We can't create that there. Um, very easily we've got one here mm, right the idea that it's a symbiotic relationship that all being said like I felt like I um I learned a lot in the honors year and one is that I learned is that I'm not an activist I, I'm not actually wanting to create work that is um political in its first um aim mm -hmm. um I, I think everything we do is political so you, I don't think you can get away from that but I do, I wanted to more have a, wanted to just track my experience of connecting in a personal level with these non-human entities and experience what it was like to talk to a river or be a river and then realise I was, in effect, mostly made up of water. So I was kind of a, a river or a puddle. I just let myself go there. Cool. And you did that for a year? And yeah. Still doing that? Has that become sort of a part of your regular life slash practice? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And now, sort of, in real life, you are a teacher? Yeah. Yeah? So, uh, what do you teach? You teach art at... You're just shifting to another school. Yeah, I'm just going to a primary school. Mm. So, um, I've been teaching art at high school. 
and I've been teaching mostly at schools for young people who have disengaged from mainstream education. So mm -hmm. that could be for reasons because they were highly anxious or had drug or alcohol addictions or were pregnant or just didn't fit in. So that's kind of a youth worker role too, I guess. But I'm um, happy to be going to sweet little kids. Yeah, so are these, <laughs> it's at a bilingual school. It's at a bilingual school. It's really interesting. But it's not sort of in that same sort of realm of people have disengaged this time? No, this no. is primary school. It's a state school. It's So it's going to be a really big shift of mm -hmm. young people that I'll be working with. Um, I won't get called at FNC anymore. That's nice. Yeah. You can swear on the podcast yeah. if you want, but yeah. <laughs> I don't like to say that word anyway. Um... um and the school's quite innovative with their program being one of the only bilingual schools um, in Queensland, I think. I think there's another one in Australia. So what they do is they split the day up and half the day they get taught in English and half the day they get taught in Japanese. So it's, it's bilingual by immersion. Right. So it's not like now we're going to go learn Japanese. It's like you're learning the same content but in the Japanese classroom with a Japanese teacher. So is there a large portion of um, Japanese uh, Japanese speaking, like first language students there? Or is it largely um, Well, I've English only worked there language? two days so far. So, But the kids that I saw, it looked like a normal primary school in a normal Brisbane really? um, suburb. There were some Japanese Which kids. suburb is it in? It's in Taragindi. It's oh, yeah. Wellers Hill Primary. Lovely. Yeah. And, um, and there were a lot of Japanese teachers because every year... Every class had an English teacher and a Japanese teacher, so. Hmm. Hmm. That's that's really cool. cool. So you're you're teaching in English. I'll be teaching art in English. In English, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you have a Japanese counterpoint to your classes, or are you just you you take the classes solo and you take them in English? I just take them in English, and they come for me. They come to me for one lesson a week. Lovely. And um, yeah, I teach one to year four and. But I will try and bring in some, because I'm interested in Japanese art forms, um, bring in some projects that link with what they're learning in mm -hmm. both their English class and their Japanese class. So, lovely. it'll be fun. Yeah, I mean, uh, God, the Japanese culture, um, you, you won't run out of Amazing. new things uh, to engage with in terms of their, their art and their poetry and just everything, actually. It's one everything. of, it's one of the, the richest just sort of cultures I think I've ever engaged with um have you been to Japan yourself no or? I haven't but I'm pretty keen to go and um when I was just shadowing the teacher um last term they were all getting ready for to take um a whole year level to Japan so how big are the year levels um I didn't ask but there was about three or four classes wow and they're all so, going together yeah yeah, so they... Um, Good thing they have the principals, trains. Yeah, the principals just... I assume it was the whole year level anyway. Mm. The principals just really passionate about Japanese culture and about being bilingual. And growing up in Australia, I guess we kind of miss out on that a bit. Like if we grew up in Europe or in mm. other parts of Asia, like learning another language would be perhaps normal. So. Right, we're such an isolated... Na nation an isolated mm. island and then learning an indigenous language is um heavily complex for a whole bunch of reasons both political so historical and yeah yeah it's difficult but i think they've just begun in 
in Melbourne, I think some yeah. schools are it's good. teaching um, the local language, it's good. having elders in to do it. Yeah, which is, um, of course, Victoria has that, right? <laughs> um, Everything's, yeah. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. but um, uh, so how do you find that? Oh, you're you're um, not the first teacher artist um, I've had on the podcast, the very first podcast with Liam Hearn. He's also a teacher artist at a high school. How do you find balancing teaching and your own practice? It's tricky. I've actually had just had two years off. Mm, doing um, honours. Doing honours, and I, I just had a year off before that, um, figuring out what I was going to do, and I did a diploma of art at TAFE because I thought it would help did being it help? able to teach it. Yeah, I just experimented, and I got to go to New York because I had oh. a study tour, so it totally helped. Yeah. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, I've, this is going to be four days a week. My previous job, because it was so um, emotionally intensive, because you were dealing with a lot of young people with some heavy stories, I found it, I'd get quite exhausted. But I'm hoping with this job that um, I'll have some energy mm. to yeah push my art practice to the next level. But it's isn't it's kind of I found it's a bit like that. You have to work for a bit and then you come back to it and work for a bit, build up your resources. Mm-hmm. And then, right. The idea yeah. that you have to have a life to react to in order to create. No, you just need the money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I've been pretty lucky just to have two years off and um, push my practice in a few areas that, I, that have really been exciting for me and interesting um, to learn about. Um, but yeah, I think it, I need to go back and see if I can do both at once or, or just build up some resources and come back to it then. Yeah, rad. Um, so you're, you engage with space quite a lot, um, and I guess that comes from your engagement with nature. Were you interested in space sort of before you got excited about the ecological self, ecocentrism, that sort of thing? I kind of um, always... I, I was, when I did my undergrad, I, w- I studied printmaking. And I, at that point, was really interested in identity and memory. Mm-hmm. And um, started making some books. But I started at that point, too, because I was home with my son all the time. He was only two, two so there was limited time I could go into the studio. I started creating my own printmaking plates using um, wire and crocheting them into different patterns and then embossing them and printing them. So and I think that happened mostly because I needed to do something I could do at home that wasn't toxic and, and that it just happened. So then I started making these um, wire crocheted lacy bags and um, plates that I then used as printmaking plates to emboss and print Mm -hmm. on. So it's funny how all that happens. So I guess that started um, a sculptural side of my work coming out. Before then, I was completely 2D. And it sort of came out of necessity, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, life and art. Right, yeah. (laughs) Well, it's the idea that sort of... um, restrictions breed creativity totally it's really true and even having 
even with this project, I'm only a week in, so I'm not sure where it's exactly where it's going next. But deciding from the beginning that I was going to have a restricted palette mm. of black and white, that I was going to only use timber and then draw with charcoal, so it's still the same material. Mm -hmm. And then I was going to use organic forms of timber and then also man-made forms of furniture timber. I think that restricted palette is something that is something of, I think, just a good tool. Yeah, yeah. just to impose on yourself yeah. real quick and just yeah. go, all right, this is how... That's what I'm going to do. This is how it's <laughs> going to be. Yeah, cool. Um, so what, after House Conspiracy, um, what's next? I think I'm going to get into my job for a little bit and then I'm going to figure out what to apply for next. <laughs> I don't have anything lined up. I'm really happy to be here and have this as a, um, a goal of a project outside of the institution, especially because it's in West End and I just live up the road. It's perfect. But I'm not sure what's next. That's exciting too. It is. Um, and so just uh, telegraphing the landing of this podcast, where can people find you? Um, on, on, on the internet or... Yeah, I've got a website, just basic online portfolio style website. It's mm -hmm. RebeccaEvans.com. Easy. And I'm on Facebook, Rebecca Evans underscore Rewoven, which is a... Sort of project? Instagram, yeah. 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 Lovely. Well, thank you so much for sitting down and chatting for the today. And, thank you. Um, have a good have a good rest of your one. Thanks, Jonathan, you too. Thanks for listening to the House Conspiracy podcast recorded at House Conspiracy and produced by me, Jonathan O'Brien, and Tyler William Morrison. If you have feedback or you want to say hi, or if there's something you'd like to see us do, you can email us at house at houseconspiracy.org and you can email me directly about ideas for future podcasts at jonathan at houseconspiracy.org. You can also support us by becoming a member or by donating to us at houseconspiracy.org slash donate. See you next time.